Good morning, friends. Uh, we have now come to the seventh and final building block of the Disciples' Walk. And in case you have uh, not listened to all the messages or if you've forgotten them, here were the first six. He's God. We're not. God doesn't need us, but we desperately need him. What God demands, he supplies. What you seek, you find. Active faith releases God's power, and there is no growth without struggle. Well, the final building block brings us back to God as the source and end of our faith. And today's message is very simply, what God starts, he finishes, or perhaps another way, if God is for us, who can be against us? This building block gives us hope in hard times and keeps us going when we'd rather quit. It inspired believers to be faithful under persecution and gave Moses the strength to reject the treasures of Egypt in favor of the unseen riches of the invisible God. It reminds us that in the end, everything we give up for the Lord will seem like no sacrifice at all. And when life tumbles in around us and others have given up their faith, we stand firm because we know that what we see is not all there is. The best, as they say, is yet to come. Romans 8.31 has been ringing in my mind all the time through this whole message series, and it's that passage that says, What then shall we say in response to this, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is the question that the people of the world want answered. Is there a God, and if there is a God, is he for us or against us? When Paul said that if God is for us, he's not saying maybe he is and maybe he isn't. It can be translated, since God is for us, or because God is for us. There is no truth more fundamental in all of God's word than this truth. God is for us. He's not against us. He's not neutral toward us. Uh, because Jesus, uh, because of Jesus once and for all, the question is settled. He's for us. And all that God is, all that God has, and all that God does, he does on behalf of his people. That's you and me. Even those times when God seems to be acting against us, if we could only look behind the veil, we would understand that God is for us. Stop for a moment and name the enemies of the people of God. I mean, can the devil stand against us? No, he's been defeated. Can the world stand against us? No, Jesus, the Bible says, has overcome the world. Can our flesh destroy us? No, because in Jesus we overcome the pull of the flesh. Therefore, let the people of God be bold. I mean, who dares to stand against this if God be for us? Well, this morning I want to consider three truths that you can depend on. And the truth of this building block depends upon several important attributes of God. One, God is faithful. That means he does not lie, he doesn't change in his essential character, and he acts in time and space to ensure that his purposes are carried out. He perseveres until that which he has ordained comes to fruition. There are no gaps, no performance failures with the Lord. He's faithful to himself, to his word, to all of his creatures. In the end, all things in the universe will be seen to have served God's purposes. No details will be missing, nothing will be out of place, and there will be no accidents. I mean, even the tragedies of life fit into God's eternal plan. The fact that we um, cannot see how this would be true simply demonstrates the first building block He's God and we're not. God is faithful whether we see it or not, and he's faithful whether we believe it or not. And second, God is good. I mean, this attribute tells us that God is for us and not against us. He intends to bless us beyond our expectations, and he desires to bless those who rebel against him. You are good, and what you do is good. That's what Psalm 119 says. 
Because God is faithful, and because he's good, we can be confident that what God starts, he finishes. Sooner or later, his word will be proven true, his justice will be vindicated, his wisdom will be plainly displayed, and the magnificence of his grace will be placarded from one end of the universe to the other. His name will be glorified, and we will be satisfied. And as we work and wait and hope for that day to come, here are three other truths you can depend on. Truth number one, all God's promises will eventually be fulfilled. The key word here, of course, is eventually. Well, reading through the book of Joshua recently, uh, I came across some verses that serve as a summary of God's faithfulness to his people. And they come at the end of a section where the Jews have defeated their enemies and finally taken possession of the promised land. It's been a hard fight that meant some people died in the process. It took blood and sweat and tears to conquer the land and drive the pagan people out. But at last the work was done, the tribes have received their allotment, and the nation was ready to settle down and live in peace. Against that background, Joshua offers this assessment. And here I'm reading from the end of uh, Joshua chapter 24 as follows. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. I hope you noted when I read that uh, although the Lord gave them the land, they still had a fight for it. The rest came only after long years of warfare. They had to go into battle over and over again, and no doubt some soldiers had to die and blood had to be shed in order for God's promises to come true. It's not as if the Jews claimed the promise and simply moved in with no opposition. They had to fight to win what God had promised. And so it is for you and me. We must fight the good fight to put on the whole armor of God and be good soldiers for the Lord. That means enduring long days and longer nights, facing fears within and foes without, being misunderstood by the world and sometimes by our best friends, living by radically different standards than the people around us, and claiming dual allegiance to two nations one on earth and the other in heaven. Living for Jesus means hard times, bearing the cross, despising the shame, denying ourselves, following wherever he leads, judging all things by the values of the kingdom, putting others above our own interests, yielding our own rights, refusing to give in to anger and rage and forgiving when we'd rather get even, loving our enemies, laying down our lives for others, bearing one another's burdens, washing dirty feet, taking on the role of a servant and sometimes being regarded as just fools seed pickers, the scum of the earth, or as I've been called every once in a while, uh, kind of a a, a radical for Jesus, a Jesus freak. I mean, sometimes we're going to be opposed, sometimes hated, sometimes mocked, sometimes persecuted, and sometimes the followers of Jesus will be put to death. It just happens. The point is this. Being a Christian does not exempt you from the problems of life. Coming to Jesus solves some problems and creates others. The problems solved include salvation, eternal life, forgiveness, removal of guilt, provision for a brand new life, new desires, and new power to serve God. And it means a home in heaven and abundant life while you serve on earth. So it's not a bad deal. And the problems you gain are rather small in comparison, but they are problems nonetheless. Being a Christ follower is a wonderful life. It's the best life there is, and it's really the only life there is. Apart from Christ, there's no life at all. 
but it doesn't mean that things will be easy or simple or that life will be a bed of roses. And I think you all know that. Or maybe it will be a bed of roses, but all those roses have thorns. The good news is that God fully intends to keep his promises to you. I mean, what he did for Israel long ago, he does for his people today. And as we trust and obey, as we fight and pray, as we stand up for righteousness and shine the light in the darkened world, one by one by one the promises are kept. And in the end, and not until then, we will look back and say, the Lord did it. Not one of his good promises failed. All came to pass. Well, here's truth number two. The Lord will complete his work in us. Psalm 138.8 says this plainly. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast, O love, O Lord, endures forever. I mean, the argument here is very simple. Because the Lord's love endures forever, his purposes for us will endure forever. If God's love could somehow fail, then perhaps we could doubt his purposes. But since his love reflects his eternal character, we can be sure that God will do whatever it takes to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish in us. And here's truth number three. The entire work of salvation is guaranteed by God. Consider Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, there are five words in this text that are really key. It's foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Those five words make up the golden chain of your salvation. It's a golden chain of five links, and these five words comprehend the entire work of God on your behalf. No other statement in the Bible so comprehensively contains what God is doing to accomplish your salvation. He begins in eternity past and finishes in eternity future. To say it another way, friends, your salvation begins in heaven, comes to earth, and ends up in heaven. And I hope you notice the tense of these five key words, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. They're all in the past tense. But you might ask, how can glorified be in the past tense when our glorification is in the future? I mean, how can God speak of our future glorification in the past tense if it hasn't even happened yet? Well, the answer is this. It is so certain that God speaks of it as past tense, even though it is still future to us. In God's mind, past, present, and future are all the same. In some sense, we can't fathom our glorification has already happened. It's so certain that God speaks of it in the past tense. Well, let's wrap this up by considering seven ways to apply this seventh building block. The first way is we can be certain of our salvation. 1 John 5, uh, 12 and 13 tells us that eternal life is only to be found in Jesus and that those who believe in him may know they have eternal life. Now, in this world, so much uncertainty. Uh, Here's something God says you can know. Do you want to go to heaven? You can. Do you want to know you're going to heaven? You can. But many people, even many Christians, say, well, I hope I'm going to heaven. But friends, that's not the language of the Bible. For those who truly trust Jesus, there's a certainty that does not depend on them or their works, but on the promise of God who cannot lie. And because salvation is God's work, when we trust Christ, We can know that we are saved, that our sins are forgiven, that we are right with God, and that should we die tonight, we will go to heaven. And second, we can be confident of God's purposes for us. 
This is one of those long-range truths that helps us when we are down and discouraged and wonder if we're all that we were truly meant to be. Philippians 1.6 reminds us that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. All that God intends to do in us and through us, he will do. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful still. And third, we can have comfort in the midst of confusing circumstances. So many things in life confuse and perplex us. Things happen, both good and bad, in such seemingly random sequence that most of the time we can't begin to understand the big picture. I mean, death is still the last enemy of the people of God, but death is not the end of the story. God will be glorified even though things that seem senseless and evil to us. We won't always see how this works out in history, but it is true nonetheless. For we know, Paul says, not we think or we hope or we dream, but we know as if to state a settled fact that all things, not some things or most things or even the things that make sense to us, work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8.28. Because God is good, it will be good. And we will see that goodness somewhere down the road, if not in this life, then in eternity, all will be well, and God will be glorified. And fourth, we can remain calm when the world is in turmoil. Many experts believe that further acts of terrorism in the United States are not only likely, they are inevitable. Clearly, there are people out there that would blow us up and walk away laughing if they could. I mean, perhaps you've actually seen a picture of this man attending an anti-Israel rally in Berlin, Germany, who dressed his young daughter up as a suicide bomber by wrapping fake dynamite around her waist. I mean, how do we maintain our sense of balance in a world like this? But one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 46, points us back to God, who is our refuge and strength and very present help in time of trouble. And the word help means that he will be for us whatever we need, whenever we need it. He is the supernatural resource when our strength has come to an end. Verse 2 of Psalm 46 says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give away and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. You know, it's still hard for me to read that verse without remembering the day the Twin Towers suddenly came crumbling to the ground. Verse 6 says, Nations are in an uproar. <clears throat> and what a fitting description for the current crisis in the Middle East. Well, what shall believers do in days of uncertainty? Will we give into fear and desperation? Verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still. Those who know God can remain calm. We know that God is in control. Verse 11, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. As believers, we do not claim any special insight into politics or military matters, but we know this much. Our God is in control. Therefore, we will not fear. We will be still and know that the Lord is God. And number five, we can have hope when our progress seems so slow. All of us, if we are honest, wonder from time to time why we seem to make so little spiritual progress. You know, we conquer a sin today and then commit the same sin tomorrow, or we conquer a sin today and commit four new ones tomorrow. Sometimes the Christian life seems agonizingly slow, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. I mean, why can't we make 20 steps forward and take a breath and then make 20 more? I mean, why does the Christian life seem so slow in terms of real life change? Well, there are many answers to that question, including the fact that struggle actually makes us grow stronger. We generally don't appreciate victories that come as no, at no cost. 
What we fight for, we value highly. And even our defeats and setbacks and our backsliding teaches us to rely on the Lord alone for everything and not at, not at all on ourselves. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us that one day we'll stand before the Lord and be holy through and through. In that day we'll be blameless before the Lord, deeply and radically cleansed of sin and profoundly renewed by the grace of God. No part of our being will be left untouched. In that day we will be holy and pure in body, soul, mind, and spirit. And most of us have a long way to go. We may despair of ever reaching that happy condition. But the one who calls on you is faithful and he will do it, it says in verse 24 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Our hope rests in the Lord. He called us. He is faithful and he will do it. Your current struggles cannot cancel God's faithfulness. He will finish his work in you. And sixth, we can encourage others who are faltering. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 points us to a crucial ministry of encouragement in light of the Lord's return. It says, think of the ways to encourage one another to outbursts of love and good deeds. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage and warn each other, especially now that the day of his coming back again is drawing near. The message translates the first phase phrase of verse 24 as, let's see how inventive we can be. Other translations speak of spurring other believers on to spiritual growth, but how do you do that? Well, by a kind word or a phone call or a note or an email or a text message or a friendly smile or a word of thanks, and especially by meeting together. I mean, don't be a lone ranger Christian. Take time to lift up a fallen brother. Say hello to a discouraged sister. Lift up the arms of someone who's fallen. When a friend falls, pick them up and help them get back in the race for God. And seventh, we can wait patiently because we know that the end of the we know the end of the story. There's a well-known gospel song that says, "I've read the end of the book and we win." I mean, that title says it all. If you read the book of Revelation, you know it's true. Jesus wins in the end, and guess what? He wins big. And everyone joined by faith with Jesus wins because he's the captain of our salvation. And when the captain wins, friends, the whole team wins. The forces of evil cannot stand against him. He speaks the word, and they are banished forever. I mean, read it for yourself. Jesus wins. The devil loses. And all those on the devil's side lose with him. That includes the demons and every worker of iniquity and all the various ranks of evil spirits and all those who have wittingly or unwittingly done the devil's bidding here on earth. The problem is right now we're living in an in-between time when Christ's victory has been secured by his resurrection from the dead but it has not yet been fully exercised on earth. The devil fights on even though he is a thoroughly defeated foe. Death still reigns. Christians still suffer and die. And even though our tears and when our hearts are broken, we still believe. And because we still believe, we wait patiently for the end of the story to be revealed. James 5.7 instructs us to be patient until the Lord's coming. Verse 8 of chapter 5 says, Be patient and stand firm because it is coming near. As we wrap up on this series on the building blocks of the disciples' life, it's good to remember what we know and what we don't know. In this life, many things remain a mystery to us, especially the troubling issues of personal loss, sudden death, and unexplained suffering. At the end of the day, after all our thoughts and prayers and meditations, and even after our deep study of the Word of God, we simply don't know why some things happen the way we do. 
Certainly we could imagine that things might turn out differently if we were in charge of the universe. But that observation leads us right back to where we began seven weeks ago. God is God, and we are not. It's amazing how often we come face to face with that reality. But this is basic to all of the rest. If God is God, he must do many things that are far beyond our understanding. That truth does not answer all of our questions, but perhaps it will enable us to quiet our hearts and to sleep at night when otherwise we wouldn't be able to sleep at all. And the things we know are all important. Nothing is wasted with the Lord. Even the parts of life that make no sense to us today will be seen in the light of eternity to have fulfilled God's eternal purpose. Between then and now, we march onward and upward, moving toward the light that shines brighter and brighter. We march on with faith and hope and love, with deep confidence in the God who made us and who loved us enough to die for us so that we could be with him. As Paul says in Romans 8, 38 and 39, we are persuaded. We truly believe. We are finally convinced that neither life nor death nor angels or principalities or powers or nothing above or below or anything else we can encounter in all creation, nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This we believe. Friends, on this truth we have staked our lives. For this we live and for this we will die. In Jesus we have become more than conquerors. Paul says, I am persuaded. Well, this morning I say to you that I too am persuaded. Are you persuaded? Paul was convinced. I'm convinced. Are you convinced? Can you truly say, I no longer have any doubts? I know that God will keep me safe to the very end. If you are not certain, it is because you are looking to yourself and not to the Lord. Take a good look at Jesus, and you will be convinced. I am persuaded. And i got to tell you, I am glad that I am. What about you? Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.